at Genesis 14 um, for a good bit of our time this morning, but we're looking at two different names here this morning, and uh, what we began last week was a a 10-12 week series on the names of God, and that song we sang just before the uh, author of Life mini-movie really has contained in it all the names that we are going to be learning with, I think, potentially one exception. I don't think we're doing Lord Shalom, um, but I was talking to Damien a couple weeks ago, and he's like, I don't think Adonai's in there either, and I was like, he's right. So we're throwing Adonai in, so we get a little bonus there, um, because we'll actually do Adonai and Yahweh on the same morning, because they get both translated into our English versions as Lord. One of them is all capitals, and then one of them is capital L lowercase o-r-d. So we're just going to try to understand a little bit how our translators and editors have helped us navigate and unpack some of what these names mean for us. But as we began last week, we looked at two names, and we'll do another two here this morning. And the reason we're doing this is because names reveal character. Names reveal character, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Scriptures, names reveal character. And that isn't as true of our culture here today, but it was very true of the culture around and the time periods in which the Bible was composed over those several thousand years. Names reveal character, and we get to learn a few things about our God by looking at the names that He has chosen to self-disclose. And that's what he's done in revealing his word to us and inspiring his word to us. He is self-disclosing to us who he is. Names reveal character. They tell us who this God that we worship and serve is. Names also reveal action. Names can help us unpack and understand what this God of ours has done. And as we think just about action, one of the things that we're not going to do is say that all the actions of God in the Old Testament are exactly the same actions we should expect today. What rather we're going to do is try to understand who God is and how he doesn't change even though his actions do. Today we'll look at a a vignette in the book of Genesis where Abraham and 300 men go and lay a whooping on five different kings, four different kings. So we don't want to conclude that the Most High God is going to empower you with 300 other people to go conquer a kingdom. I think that would just be a misapplication of this text and what God reveals to us about it. But we see the God of Abraham as most high and capable 
and his actions are revealed, and where and why, even though his actions today may not be what they were, they reveal to us who he is. And again, it goes back to character. And then specifically, God's names, we are told throughout the scriptures, are a place of refuge and power. God's names are a place of refuge and power. And there's no name given among men by which men are saved other than the name of Jesus. Our salvation is only in the name of Jesus. God gave Jesus the name that is higher than any other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's name is refuge in power and we'll see that on display in our texts and in the names we look at here this morning. And so just as we consider the approach, if you weren't here with us last week and weren't here unpacking kind of how we're going to do this, here's what we're going to do and here's what we're going to embark on, is we're going to try to understand what the name is in the Old Testament, what it means as God revealed it in the Old Testament, and then we're going to try to make this bridge between the old and new. And that bridge is in part going to be just thinking through how did that Old Testament name written in Hebrew get translated to Greek? And then does that Greek word show up in the New Testament at all? Because what happened a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, so we're talking about, you know, two, three hundred years B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was part of this big campaign of, I believe, Alexander the Great called Hellenization, where they wanted everybody to be Greek. And if you want that, then you need language to be Greek, and you need writing to be Greek. And so there was just this massive Greek influence, and the Hebrew Scriptures get translated into Greek. And so they had to pick which words, which Greek words, fit that Hebrew word. And then as the New Testament is written, it's obviously written primarily in Greek, and then we can go, okay, how, how do those words get used? And there's some direct places those words get used. And then lastly, we then want to ask ourselves the question, how does Jesus show up? And how does he become the spotlight? How does he reveal to us in both his actions and what his teachings were, and even what the New Testament authors say about him, That he is the image of the invisible God. That he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So that as we think through the Old Testament names of God and we see his character revealed and we see his actions revealed and we find where there's refuge and strength in his name that we see all of those things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That ultimately at the end of this, we wouldn't just have intellectual knowledge that somehow we can feel a little bit smarter about, but rather we would know more about who Jesus is, more about what he has done, more how we can trust him. So that's why we're doing it, that's how we're doing it. So before we do it, let's pray, and then we'll try to unpack these two names here together this morning. Would you join me? Well, Jesus, we want to see more of you. You tell us that your Holy Spirit has been given and that one of his jobs is to glorify you, is to shine the spotlight on you. 
because you are the image of the invisible God. You are the exact imprint of his nature. And so we just, we ask that we'd, we'd see you. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. As we look at your word that is living and active, would you, would you be gracious to us and do in us what we need. And so if we need, if we need encouraged, would you come and by your spirit encourage? If we need corrected, would you come and by your spirit provide correction? Whatever it is that we need, both individually and collectively as a group, would you just do your work? That we may know you more, that we may know more of your love for us, and in turn, may love you more. And we pray this in your good name. Amen. Well, if you're in Genesis 14, you're going to see, as I indicated, this little vignette that shows up about Abraham and Lot. And we know from Genesis 13 that Abraham and Lot picked some different pieces of land to live in. And Lot chose the grass is greener piece of land and that didn't work out very well for him. And Abraham chose the piece of land that wasn't as pleasant to look at. And he prospered and God used him in some pretty tremendous ways. But Lot chooses to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the beginning the beginning part of Genesis 14 really serves to show us what's going on with Lot. It's to help us unpack what is going on in his world. But it is, it is, a, it is a scene straight out of the most epic game of risk that has ever been played on the game board. And I want to try to unpack what's happening here for us because it is in this scene and at the end of Genesis 14 that El Elyon, the Most High God, is used for the first time in the Old Testament. And so there's the names we unpacked last week, Elohim, the one true creator, the possessor of all power, El Shaddai, God Almighty, all-sufficient one, we're going to be looking this morning at El El Yan to begin with, the Most High God. And it's in the tail end of Genesis 14 that El El Yan is used for the first time. But instead of just reading the text, I thought I would try to illustrate it with some pictures here for you and uh, let it be a little bit more interactive. And so, what you have in the beginning verses of Genesis 14 is you have these four kings. On the left, and what I've done is I've named their kingdoms. I've not named them, I've named their kingdoms. They had some type of authority or power over the five kingdoms on the right. And we are told that this lasted for 12 years. Verse 4, 12 years. The kings on the left, or I'm sorry, the kings on the right served the kings on the left. But in the 13th year... They had had enough. And they said, that's it, we're done. This arrangement isn't working any longer. And they rebelled. And then this really interesting section happens where we're told in verse 5, in the 14th year, 
The king's on the left, and I'm not even trying to pronounce any of these names for you this morning, okay? So I'm just going to refer to him as the king's on the left, and the kings who were with him defeated, and then there's a whole new list of people named who are not the people that are on the right. And so there's six different either cities or six different kings or six different kingdoms that show up. And we're not told whether they are kings or whether they were cities or whether they were full-blown kingdoms. But there are six different individuals named that are defeated. And here's what I think happened. That when the kings on the right, those five of them from Sodom and Gomorrah, as they, as they said, we're done, we've had enough, that there was some collateral political damage and fallout that occurred. And whether or not the kings on the left just said, all right, we've got to put these other six cities under our thumb, or whether those six cities said, you know what, this is a good time for us to reevaluate the situation we have found ourselves in. We're out as well. We're not told, but we're told that the kings on the left took and defeated this group of six there in the middle. And then, in verse 8, the kings on the right go to war with the kings on the left. So those six guys, they kind of fly out and aren't really a part of the scene anymore. And now there is a battle between the five kings on the right, the four kings on the left. And the four kings on the left were pretty bad dudes because they put a whooping on the five kings on the right with the exception of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who turned tail and ran away. And we see that show up in verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of their provisions, and went their way. Here's where we see Lot come back in. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So the four kings on the left are pretty bad dudes. They have defeated at least five kingdoms, two of them turning tail and running away. They have done something to the other six names that were mentioned. We know it's a defeat, but we don't know how extensive the defeat was. But still, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. And then Abram shows up. Verse 13, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Marami, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anur. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen, that's Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and then we are told where he leads them to. So just imagine the scene for a moment. The the four kings on the left have defeated the five kings on the right who had rebelled against them, have defeated the other six groups of individuals that were led, whether they were cities or kingdoms or regions, we don't know, but there was still a decisive battle and defeat rendered. And then Abraham and 300 of his guys say, 
we've got something to say about this. And Abraham, or Abram, takes his 318 men, and he goes into battle, and he wins. And in verse 16, Abram brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, and his possessions, and the women, and the people. 318 men went and did battle against four kingdoms worth of warriors, probably chariots and equipment, I mean, you name it, and they find a victory. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of that king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of, you see it there, God Most High, El Elyon. So the kings on the left have been decisively conquering everybody until Honest Abe comes and shows up on the scene. And he takes care of business. And he returns Lot and the possessions and the women and the children and all of those things. It's implied, I think, that all of Sodom's possessions come back as well. And Abram then has a conversation. Whether it's with Sodom and Gomorrah, we're not told. But then there's this random guy that shows up who's not been talked about at all up until this point. And his name is another one that's hard to pronounce, but I'm going to give that one a go. And it's Melchizedek. And we're told he's king of Salem. And he's a bit of an interesting fellow because he shows up again in the Psalms and then shows up again in Hebrews chapter 7. We learn a few things about Melchizedek, but here we're told that he was king of Salem and he was priest of God Most High. And in verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand what we see in Genesis 14 and what Melchizedek is said to be as the priest of God most high and the blessing he renders is three of the some 50 different occurrences that El Elyon shows up in the Old Testament El or Melchizedek was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and blessed God as the Most High God. El Elyon's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. We're not going to look at all 50-some references, but one of the other places it shows up is in Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful Deeds, I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. O Most High. And what we see in the initial occurrence and the use of El Elyon, and what we see throughout the Old Testament as this name is continually used, it's not just defined as most high God, it's defined as the God who can do the things that nobody else can do, because he's the God most high. 
So in that way, it's, it's, it's very similar, and there will absolutely be overlap over the next several weeks between the names that we look at. There's a lot of overlap and in in similarity to Elohim, the one true God, the creator God, the possessor of all power. But he's the most high God. He's the highest of the high. He alone is capable of taking 300 men and defeating four armies. He alone is capable of taking 300 men and Gideon and defeating some armies. He alone is capable of taking a bunch of guys with some trumpets and marching them around a city and watching the walls of Jericho fall down. He alone is capable of doing what nobody else is capable of doing because he's the most high God. Most high. Jesus is called son of the most high. We see this a couple different times in the New Testament. Here in regards to the announcement of his birth, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus has an encounter with a man that he frees from being demonically possessed. And the demon comes out and says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is one of those moments where we see James 2 come to light, where even the demons believe in God and they shudder. Here this, this demonic spirit was fully aware of who it was he was talking to, and he addressed him as son of the Most High God. You have in the uh, account of the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 verse Nine, when the crowd is shouting and Jesus is coming in on the path that they had littered with palm branches. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're not necessarily ascribing to Jesus here the name most high God. But they are recognizing that he is higher than any other. Hosanna. In the highest. I referenced Hebrews 7 where Melchizedek shows back up. And he does. And the point of Hebrews 7, and we're not going to turn there, but the point of Hebrews 7 is that for these Hebrew Christians to understand that Jesus was greater than Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is actually an Old Testament picture of Jesus. That if you can understand a few things about Melchizedek, then you can understand a few things about Jesus. And oh, by the way, Jesus was greater than Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. Jesus, as God, is also, though, priest. And the author of Hebrews in verse 25 tries to tie together all of these implications of what he's writing about the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. And he says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And El Yel Yan is the name of God used to just describe the God who's able to do what no one else can do. And Jesus is able to do what no one else can do. And he is able to save to the uttermost. That's this idea that we're, we're kept 
were held in his hand. That the, the, the life of following Jesus, the life of walking in obedience to Jesus is not so much the life of you and I holding on for dear life, trying to not ever let go as much as it is him holding us and not letting us go. Because he's able to save to the uttermost. And he is continually always living to make intercession for us. Not for sin, that's been done once and for all. But as we draw near to God and we, we obey his command to do so and we come to his throne in our moment of need, looking for and asking for the grace and mercy that we need, Jesus is there on our behalf as our advocate, as our mediator, as our great high priest. But he is most high. El Yan is the God who's able to provide and do absolutely anything because he is higher than absolutely anything else. And there is an authority that he has over all things that he alone possesses. And for those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, he has already given and promised to provide what we need. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19 that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I want to be careful here and I just want us to think for a moment as we kind of think through how do we apply this. That, that sometimes God defines our needs differently than we define our needs. Sometimes we're not fully capable of understanding exactly what our needs are. or We bring needs to God that maybe he wouldn't consider to be the same level of need that we would have placed it on. And, and it might be that he recognizes that eh, that's a bit of a want, but I really know what you need. So let's just be careful how we define these things here. Because Philippians 4.19 is not a blank check for you and I to write and fill in the details of, that somehow forces the hand of God to give us whatever we want. And there in 1 John, you can kind of see the balance there, where our confidence that we have towards him is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And Jesus promises that we, we ask and we receive. And the Father gives when we come and ask in the name of the Son. But again, these are not blank checks that we get to fill in the details of. And part of the role of even the Holy Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us, is that he interprets our prayers to where even if we think we know what we need and we're off, he, he takes them and aligns them with the will of God. I want us to resist the, the superstitious conclusion that, oh, if we had just prayed in the name of El El Yan, we would have forced the hand of God Most High to our favorable end. And as we think about just all of these names, th these, are not, these are not to be incantations that you and I say. That somehow it, 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 it demands of God something on our behalf because we've used the particular name. 
And so he's God most high. We're going to pray in the name of El El Yan. And that somehow forces him to do something that we have identified we want him to do. I want us to be careful there. Because the picture of God in the scriptures is that he's a heavenly father. And he has already provided us all things. And he will supply everything that we need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But sometimes I define my needs a whole lot differently than he may define my needs. And sometimes he's got something far greater planned that he is working for his glory and my good that I can't fully unpack and see. And so we don't pray the names of God, we don't come before God, we don't study the names of God to somehow find ways to force the hand of God because he is a good father who who lives and is always making provision and providing for his children. My kids don't need to find the right name to call me so that I put food on the dinner table. Oh, great bestower of fry or frozen pizza. Like they don't need to do that. We just get home from church on Sundays and we turn on the oven and we throw the pizza in. I'm just dad. And they come before me as dad. And I love to provide for them because they're my kids. Not because they found the right word to use to somehow get my attention. So as we think about God being the most high and capable of doing what nobody else is capable of doing. Let's be careful we don't slide towards thinking that now we've found the secret. Now we can unlock it. It's, it's almost like genie from Aladdin. Like, oh, we, we found a way to rub the lantern. To get our three wishes. Now, names reveal character. The names of God reveal his actions. And the names of God are refuge and power. And we see that refuge. And we see that power. And we see God's character on display in Genesis 16. As we begin to think through and unpack El Roy. El Elyon is God most high. El Roy is the God who sees. And if you were here last week, we looked at a whole bunch of different biblical names that all have the letter E-L in them. Because in Hebrew, the letter E-L just stands for God. And so Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, that is a name that has God in the definition. And we can see that throughout the Old Testament. And I would go as far to say, I won't guarantee that every time you see the E-L together, that it has something to do with God. But you probably should pause and look and ask the question and maybe do a quick search to see, okay, does that name actually have God in its definition or not? Because that's how these things work. And so Roy is the idea of sight. It's the idea of vision. And L being the word for God, you have the God who sees, and this name is used only one time in the entire Old Testament. And if you were in Genesis 14, look over to Genesis 16, you probably don't even have to turn the page to get there. But what we see is Abram conquering, defeating, returning Lot having this moment of communion with Melchizedek, who's priest of God Most High, and then God reaffirms his promise to Abram. But then Abram and Sarai get a little impatient. 
somehow God's timing wasn't their timing, and their timing was a little faster than God's. And if you've been around church at all for a while, you probably grew up learning the story. Sarai says, Abram, you, you take Hagar as your wife. We'll, we'll find the promise. You'll find your heir through her. And so Abram does. And in verse 3, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And Hagar conceived. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked at with contempt on Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. And in verse 6, Abram said, behold, your servant is in your power to do as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. And we know that Hagar ends up running away. And in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her. By, the spring of wa- by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now here's another just interpretive key for you as you read your Old Testament. When you see the words, the angel of the Lord, it is right and correct to think Jesus. These are pre-incarnate moments of Jesus Christ. They're, the, the big fancy word is a theophany. When you see an angel of the Lord, it's just one of the angelic hosts. And so here, I believe Hagar is having a conversation with the pre-incarnate Christ. And he comes, and he draws near to her, and he's got a few things to say to her. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Do you see the E-L at the end there? You might have a footnote in your Bible that says that Ishmael means God hears. You shall call his name Ishmael. You shall call his name God hears because the Lord has listened, he's heard, and he's listened to your affliction. Then go to verse 13. Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You are El Roy. Now look, she then names the place where she was. Go to verse 14. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. And you have again, perhaps a footnote telling you and I that that means the well of the living one who sees. Because Roy means sight. And so El Roy is the God who sees. I think there's some tremendous things for us to consider in thinking about the fact that God sees. And I think in just trying to unpack even what I said earlier today about being pro-life does not just mean to be pro-baby. Here in this passage, we see 
Jesus not being just pro-baby, but being pro-life. He's drawn near and spoken and has seen and listened to a mother in great distress. Hagar found herself in the midst of a situation that we might be able to say she shouldn't have found herself in. But here she found herself. And here God draws near and he sees. And he listens. As this word, Roy or Elroy, gets translated into the Greek and kind of all that stuff we talked about a few minutes ago, we see the Greek word show up in the uh, Old Testament version a couple times. One of those times is in Exodus 2.25. And we're told that God saw, there's our word, the people of Israel, and God knew. In Jeremiah 29.11, there's another instance where we're told that God knows. And I don't want to conflate all of these together, and it would be probably incorrect to do so and make all of these different words mean the same thing. But I think what is repeated is that the character of God and the actions of God are such that we serve a God who sees. We serve a God who knows. Now in Jeremiah 29, 11, that famous verse, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to, to bless you and not to do harm against you. And, and, and we love that. We love to stick it on a coffee cup. It's a good verse to put there. It's a good verse to memorize. But the context there is that the nation of Israel was walking in open disobedience before the Lord. And in verse 10, right before verse 11, he tells them, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. But I know the plans that I have for you. I want you to just kind of think for a moment, and, and I'm going to kind of squish some things together. But here you have, in Genesis 16, a woman who found herself in the midst of some relational guck. Perhaps not through any fault of her own. We might disagree with that, but it could be argued she had very little say over what her master told her to do. But in Exodus 2.25, you have the nation of Israel at this point being in captivity, but they, they got there because they followed the hand of the Lord. Like, they end up in Egypt because God sent Joseph there to spare the known world of a famine that he orchestrated. And then Joseph's brothers and family got there, and then they multiplied and were prosperous. But then there was a new Pharaoh who forgot about Joseph. And they began oppressing the Israelites, and they found a way to get cheap labor. And they were really good at it. Built some pretty amazing things. But God saw. The nation of Israel ended up in slavery because they had followed the hand of God. But then, come Jeremiah 29, 11, they were walking openly in disobedience before him. Do you see kind of the three different categories there? You've got, you've got somebody that maybe by no fault of their own finds themselves in a position that, wow, this is bad, and God sees. You find here the nation of Israel in Exodus following the Lord, 
following what he has led them to, at that point, having walked in obedience, but, but now in some circumstances that are not favorable and God sees. But even when the Lord has to bring some consequences and discipline for their open disobedience, he's still the God who knows and sees. And this idea of God knows was something that God used in my life at a particular point in time that it was was just one of those moments. It was about, I don't know, ten, nine, eight years ago. I can't remember exactly, but stuff at our church and community grace was hard. It was hard on a lot of fronts, but it was just hard. And Carrie and I were just exhausted, just hard, trying to do what the Lord would have us to do, imperfectly, certainly, just just worn out and just kind of beaten down, just wondering, like, what in the world, God? And it was at that point in time where uh, a lot of people did the auto-signature on their cell phones when they sent text messages. Anybody remember that? And like you, you could go in and you could say like every text that I want to have sent, I want like my name sent with it. Like nobody does that anymore. But ten years ago, that was the thing. And and so uh, the the individual that texted me had this auto signature on, but they didn't have an iPhone. And as we learned a couple weeks ago, definitively conclusive that iPhones are better than any other device. And so uh, it came through all broken and choppy. And, and I think the original intent of the message was something about the next morning and this person singing on the praise team and kind of co- connecting some whatever stuff. Those details aren't important. But what's important is that what came through was just two words. And it just says, he knows. And I remember standing right in front of my mom and dad's couch in their living room. And it was on the wood floor, so they had replaced the carpet by then. And it's kind of funny how your memories kind of mark time by some of those things. And, and those two words were so powerful in that moment. And then, like, the second part of the message came through, and it led off with, like, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And then I think it followed up with, like, I think we should sing this song. And we just kind of kept going, but those two words in that moment was the reminder that I needed that the hard stuff we were walking through at that point had not escaped the sight of Elroy and the God Most High and Elohim and El Shaddai and all of it. It had not escaped his attention. He hadn't taken a nap. He somehow didn't find himself all of a sudden going, holy smokes, what did I put the clothiers through? Like, this was a part of what he had for us. And in the midst of it, he was still who he was. And he was good. And he was the God that sees. And he's the God that knows. And that's who he is. He's the God that sees. And I don't know. I know some of, of you, what you're going through. Not all. You might be going through some stuff. He knows. 
it has not escaped his attention. He listens, he sees, and he knows. And because of that, and because of who he is, and because of what Jesus has done then for us and providing us access to him as our great high priest and mediator, we draw near. We draw near in the name that is higher than any other name to find the grace and mercy we need in our time of need. And he knows. Would you pray as the band comes back up? Well, God, we thank you that you are a God who sees You are the most high God. You are the one true God. You are the creator God. You are the all-sufficient God, the almighty God. God, we thank you that even when we feel alone and we find ourselves going through hard things, whether it's it's because of choices we've made or because it's, it's... things that we don't have control over or whether it's just you doing a refining work in us that you you're there and you know and it has not escaped your attention you tell us that those moments we're to consider as joy because you're doing something in us that would not otherwise have been done And those hard moments haven't taken you by surprise. And you're right there. As a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who knows. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus.